Thank you for having me. It's a real joy and a privilege to be with you here this morning. Uh, I do have the impossible task of kind of handling one of the most uh, difficult opening chapters, but I think it's fun and we're going to have some uh, good times in it. And so I don't want to talk too much about myself. If you want to know more about me, uh, we can catch up afterwards. So I want to jump straight into scripture if that's okay. Uh, I'm actually going to start in the book of Acts because Acts kind of gives us a little bit of a backstory to what's going on in Ephesians. And in Acts 19, 23, uh, Luke tells us the story. Uh, about that time, no little disturbance broke out concerning the way. Uh, that's what early Christians were called. They were called followers of the way. That's uh, a paraphrase of a line in Isaiah because they were followers of the way of the Lord. Uh, it Sounded a little bit weird, so it didn't really catch on, uh, because followers of the way, ooh, what does that mean? Uh, and so the, the kind of the identity market never really took off. Uh, but here Luke's telling us a story about a disturbance that broke out. A man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis. Uh, brought uh, no little business to the artisans. These he gathered together and the workers of the same trade and said, men, you know that we get our wealth from this business. You also see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost the whole of Asia, this random guy called Paul, I've added a little bit there, uh, has persuaded and drawn away a considerable number of people by saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be scorned. And she will be deprived of her majesty that brought all Asia and the world to worship her. Uh, I just want to tell you a little bit more about uh, Artemis. And we have an ancient uh, testimony of this, and it says this, I have seen the walls of unbreachable Babylon along which chariots may race. I have seen the statue of Zeus by the river Alpheus. I have seen the hanging gardens of the Colossus of the Sun. I have seen the great man-made mountains of the lofty pyramids and the gigantic tomb of Mosulos. But when I saw the sacred house of Artemis reaching to the clouds, the others Paled. Okay. So when Paul writes his letter to the Ephesians, he's writing to quite a small community. Uh, there's no such thing as a mega church in the ancient world. I know you all read the book of Acts and saw thousands got saved, but those thousands went home. Uh, they didn't stay in Jerusalem. They went back to where they were from. And the biggest church that we know of in the first century was probably in Ephesus. And it was probably 100 to 150 people. They didn't all gather together at the same time, probably gathering together in groups of about 30 or 40. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Auckland, but in Auckland, we have this huge thing that sticks out into the sky, and it doesn't matter where you are in Auckland, you can see that random object just hanging out. Now, that's what it's like in Ephesus. It doesn't matter where you go in Ephesus, you can turn around and be reminded of this gigantic temple to Artemis. If you read Acts, uh, that disturbance that kind of breaks out with Paul preaching the gospel leads the people of Ephesus to gather together in the main theater, which is still around. You can go visit it today. And they shout at the top of their lungs, great is Artemis, Artemis of the Ephesians, great is, and they chant that for two hours. Because this is central to their way of life. In fact, to dis 
Artemis is to bring upon yourself infertility. It's to bring upon yourself uh, uh, kind of uh, curses and bad business deals and sickness and death. You do not mess with her. She's considered one of the most powerful goddesses in the whole of the ancient world. And here's this little group of Christians gathered together. (laughs) And there they are, intimidated by her presence, which is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And... Paul says this, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace. And Paul kind of launches his letter with this, wow, God, you are ridiculously amazing. And it's kind of a bit, I can imagine the early Christians going, really? Kind of like, okay, we're here, Paul, you know, we're here. But really, how do we compare our God with that massive temple that everybody can see? That the whole of Asia Minor, for two weeks of the year, the whole of Asia, they all descend on this place and they all come and for two weeks they have a massive party of festivals and ritual sacrifice and prayers and dancing and it's a cultural phenomenon. And yet, here's these Christians, probably a bit snug like we were last night, all there gathered together. Wow, God, you're amazing. And so Paul's kind of job in Ephesians 1 is to say, church, they might have a temple, but God has a universe. They might have lots of festivals and sacrifices, but our God has been at work before time, during history, right now, and we can trust him for the future. In fact, you just played out that story in communion. Because communion is all about looking back. Wow, Jesus, look what you've done. Communion is all about looking here. Look at what you're doing, Jesus. I was so edified by your words, brother. Thank you. I really mean that. Look at what Jesus is doing amongst us and looking forward, wow, to that great banquet where we will all be together celebrating. Everybody different, everybody a different backstory, and yet we come together. And that's what you're doing in communion. You're celebrating time, the time that God has been involved from the beginning right through to now, right through to the end. And that's what Paul's going to do in this passage. He's going to take us back and say, God's always had a plan. He's always had a couple of aces up his sleeve that no one knew about. And we kind of didn't realize some of the time, where are you going, Lord? But we trusted him and we look at the story and we go, whoa, is that what you were trying to do all along? Yes, that's amazing. And so as we get, read through this passage, I want you to kind of feel Paul saying, this is incredible. In fact, it's so incredible, Paul's kind of left grammar. Um <laughs> Grammar is not kind of Paul's strong suit in Ephesians 1. If you read this in Greek, verses 3 to 14 is one sentence. Okay? So wherever you kind of see a full stop, in the, that's us trying to help you guys out. It's us trying to help us out as well, you know, because academics will go, well, Paul, just slow down, buddy. Just, just breathe. 
But it's just, no, 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 he's amazing. I can't stop it. I must tell you everything about what he's done because it's amazing and this is great. And he goes on longer than that because he wants to give the church a vision of how amazing, how ridiculously amazing God's kindness is towards us. And so it's kind of like, where does my help come from when I'm in a city which is dominated by the presence of this massive, humongous pagan temple? There are about 100,000 people living in Ephesus. There are about 5,000 Jews. There's about 100, 150 Christians. Talk about being outnumbered. And yet Paul says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Not praise to this God or that God, not praise to just any old God, the specific God that is identified with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you know who Paul's talking about. He wants to tell you. You know, sometimes people say to me, oh, Sean, I don't believe in God. And I kind of go, which one? And as soon as I hear about the God they don't believe in, I'm like, yeah, I'm with you. I don't believe in that one. No, I'm an atheist. No, I, I, I don't believe in that. In fact, the early Christians were called atheists because they didn't believe in the Greco-Roman gods. And sometimes when people say they don't believe in God, I'm like, yeah, don't believe in that one. That's bad. Because your understanding of him is so warped. That's not the one I love and serve. That's not the one I've encountered. This one is to be praised. This one is to be blessed because he's amazing. Now, let me tell you why he's amazing. Paul starts because he's blessed us with every blessing of the Spirit or every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies, Christ. And so what are these spiritual blessings? What are these blessings of the Spirit? Well, in verse 4 it says, For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Now that's a, whoa, that's one of those tricky verses, Sean. Yeah, that's why Sam got me in here. He's like, pass the buck. I don't deal with that stuff. Give it to that guy. It's actually not that difficult. It says, for he chose us in him. Long before the foundation of the world, God had a plan. And that plan centered around Jesus. And so the plan was, hey, everybody would at some stage be incorporated into Jesus. And look here, he's not saying he, he chose us before uh, the creation of the world to be saved. Doesn't say that. He says he chose us before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. So God decided that whoever gets saved in Christ Jesus, whoever comes to know Jesus, I choose them in Christ that they be holy and blameless. Now, this word holy keeps tripping Christians up because somewhere along the line, we began to get scared of this word. And we thought this word meant separation. So just because Sam's my buddy now, I can use him as an example. So if I'm holy, which of course, you know, uh, and Sam is not so much, uh, then what I want to do is I want to create as much distance between him and me as is possible because that's unholy, that's contagious, you know, that's bad. And I'm trying to be good, I'm trying to follow Jesus. And so the more distance I can create, no, no, don't worry, I got this. Uh, 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 the more distance I can create, uh, the better. 
And so Christians developed this theology that holiness meant separation from so that we can be pure. Now, what's the problem with that? The problem with that is his name is Jesus. And he just doesn't seem to do that ever. In fact, he's about how close can I actually get? (laughs) This just got awkward. (laughs) So I just thought I'd invade your personal space there, brother. Jesus is not worried about catching what sinners have got. For Jesus, his holiness is contagious. So what does holiness actually mean? It means a distinctiveness. It means reflecting the character and concerns of God. It does not mean running away from things. Now look, wisdom might say, hey, the situation's not that great. It might influence me in a bad way, and so I'm going to remove myself from it. But that's not what holiness is. That's what wisdom is. And so God's plan is always that God's people would be holy. That is, that they would distinctively reflect who He is and what He's about. His priorities, His values. And He had this intention right from the start. In fact, if you want to talk about election and God choosing people, you go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. and says, hey, Abraham, I choose you so that you and your families, you can be a blessing to a selected group of people. No, that's not what he says. I choose you so that in you and through you, we can be a blessing to all the nations of the earth. The choosing there is to be an agent of blessing to everyone. The choosing there is not, hey, we get to look at you guys and go, oh, you're out. You didn't get chosen. Sorry for you. No, it's inclusive. It's, in a sense, choosing election is for mission. And so that God can say, hey, I've got things I want to do in this world, and I want you to be part of that. And God has always wanted to partner with people. And so when we think about God choosing us, it's He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us for adoption. When we talk about predestination, we're talking about a destiny that's predetermined. And what is the destiny? That we would be adopted in Christ, that we would be made part of His family. Now, in the Greco-Roman world, adoption, if you're adopted into someone's family, you have all the rights of a biological child. They absolutely make no distinction. In fact, sometimes if you don't have children, we just adopt one and they become your legitimate heir. And so Paul is saying here, we have been adopted through Jesus Christ into the family of God. Now, this is beautiful because in Ephesians, there's a bit of a tension. And when you guys get to chapter 2, you'll see this. But the tension is that there's different groups from different backgrounds and different cultural groups, Jews and Gentiles. And in the ancient world, they're at each other's throat. They don't like each other. There's animosity, there's division. Paul says, no, 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 no. What God's plan has been always to create one beautiful new family together. One family where we can uh, trust Him. One family where we can be together in God's family, holy and blameless in His sight. So what Paul's doing here is saying, right from the start, God had a plan for a people. People with different kinds of backgrounds people with different stories, and He chose all of us 
to reflect his beautiful character and concerns for everyone else. He chose us to be part of what he's doing in this world, in Christ. He wants us to be his children. What a privilege to be a son and a daughter of the living God. Only special people get to hang out with the gods and goddesses in the Greco-Roman world. They're elitist. They're very exclusive. Paul says, no, not my God. Everyone is welcome. Everyone is part of this family. Everyone can be part of this family. So then he moves from the past. He moves to the present. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. I love this notion of the riches and the lavished. It's, uh, it's exorbitant language. It's extravagant language. Paul is saying God is just way more gracious than I would ever be. Way, I mean, I would have kind of like... Sometimes I'm like, nah, let's just do shift delete. <laughs> I'm just being honest. Sometimes, you know, human beings, we're not the best sometimes. <laughs> I can think of a few and I'm like, mm, yeah, shift delete. <laughs> then I realized pr- probably some people think that way about me. <laughs> Thankfully, I've convinced my wife not to. <laughs> Imagine God who wasn't patient. Imagine God who wasn't kind. I'm not quite sure I'd be here. He's so gracious. And he wants to forgive. See, sometimes I I, I meet people and when they explain to me about God, I, I sit there and listen. I'm like, aren't you talking about Zeus? You know the pagan God who's got a lightning bolt in his hand he's just waiting for you to mess up so he can go, bam, smite you. I'm like, really? That's, that's just not the God I know. Because trust me, I've given God in quite a few reasons to know. Been alive for a while now. I have tried my best, in fact. My mom was quite concerned that when I started going to church, she was like, you do not want to irritate God, Sean. You, 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 like, you have managed to irritate and annoy everybody. You don't want God on your bad side, buddy. I don't think that's a battle you're going to win. You've lost everything else so far. Let's just pull back here. And yet when I encountered God, it was all about his grace and his kindness and his forgiveness. You want to know why we praise him? You want to know why we bless him? Because he's generous. Because his grace is lavished. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to the good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on and earth and under Christ. What Paul's saying is God's had a plan right from the start to bring everything, to restore everything, to reconcile everyone. How's his plan? That's his hope. That's his dream. You're never going to meet that one person where you go, oh, wait, you're the one that God doesn't love. <laughs> you're never going to find that person. 
You're never going to find, oh, you're the one he wants to exclude. No. Now, like if I was doing things, there would be lots of little exceptions here along the way. Like, mm, no, we can, no, 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 definitely not. You know? <laughs> but God, he's like, from the beginning, he's had this plan that people would be incorporated into his family, that they would re- reflect his character and his concerns, that they would be his people, his children even, from the beginning. And the scope of this plan is the same as it was in Genesis 12. Everyone! So that no one misses out. So that everyone has an opportunity to experience God's beautiful forgiveness. And he made known to us, he's talking about the church there, the mystery of his will. What are you up to, God? Restoring everything. What are you doing, God? Reconciling people. Which people, God? Everyone. But surely, yes, even those people. But, 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 no, no, those people, no. And what about, yes. There are no exclusions here. God wants everyone because he created everyone. And he wants everyone to be part of his family. He doesn't want anyone to miss out. This is actually good news. It means that you haven't ever wandered too far. It means you can't have wandered too far. Because you're still alive and he loves you. And he wants his people to realize this plan because the book of Ephesians is all about, hey people, we're on a mission together. We're on a journey together. And you need to understand that way before you guys were even on the scene, God had a plan and he's been working out that plan. The restoration of all things, the summing up of all things, the reconciling of all things, to be a blessing to everyone so that no one misses out. Even the people we might want to exclude. But he didn't exclude us, so why would he exclude them? And you kind of go, oh, okay, please. I, I work for Tear Fund and I do a lot of work on the theology of justice. And what I've noticed is we always want justice for other people, but we want mercy for ourselves. Oh, that hurt me when I discovered that. I was like, oh, that's uncomfortable, Lord. God is so kind and good. He lavishes on us with all wisdom and understanding. He makes known to us the mystery of his will so that we can participate in it. So that we can be part of what God is doing in this world. Forgiveness sorting out all the stuff that we've messed up, fixing things. People often ask me, you know, Sean, what's, what is justice? Some people think it's about vengeance. Some think it's, people think it's about payback. If you look at a theology of justice in the scriptures, it's all about making things right. It's all about restoring things so that they can flourish. And here in this letter to the Ephesians, Paul says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. You know what? This gives me hope. Not hope just so that God's dealt with my past, but hope that he can deal with the stuff that's plaguing me now. Because I'm not perfect. I haven't arrived yet. Sorry if that's news to you. Certainly not news to my wife. But I'm on this journey with Jesus, trying to do what he did, trying to become like him, 
trying to adopt his way of life and figure out what that looks like today. And this is what Paul's inviting this Ephesians into. This is what Paul's inviting us into as God's people, to be part of God's cosmic plan, which started right at the beginning and which comes right through our lives and which will continue once we're gone. Till God wins, till he reconciles everything to himself. He wants to restore people. In verse 11, uh, Paul carries on. It says, in him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to put our hope in Christ might live or be for the praise of his glory. God's got a plan and he wants people to live their lives for the praise of his glory. How do you live a life for the praise of his glory? You go back to the start here when I was talking about holiness. You reflect his character, his concerns. It's not about creating distance. It's not about creating separation. It's about saying, God, what are you up to? What do you like? And how do we live that life? Because we know that you are a God who desires a good life for us. Now, when I say good life, I don't mean that we get everything we want. I mean, we get to be the kind of people that reflect his character, his concerns, his priorities for people. We were chosen. This is God's plan, that we would be his people, living according to who he is, living according to what he wants to do in this world, so that we might live to the praise of his glory. If you don't love to the praise of his glory, you need to go back and understand first what he's done, what he's been doing, and what he wants to do. It's kind of like all this is part of Paul's theology, because theology for Paul is about how do I give people a vision of God so that they understand who God is, and when you understand who God is, then you understand who you are, and when you understand who you are, then you can understand who others around you are, and then you can begin to live out that identity. You see, I think a lot of times people are victims of the wrong story. You've forgotten who you are because you don't know who God is. You've forgotten who He is. You've forgotten how kind and good and gracious and generous He is and how much He would go, the distance He would go for people. You see, love is not this wishy-washy feeling. It's this commitment to the well-being and benefit of others. That's why 1 John 3.16 says, this is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. Who else has done that for you? Who else has gone the distance for you? My mom went pretty close. I messed up my life radically. And she went the distance for me. But God went a heck of a lot further. He's so kind, so generous, so good. I certainly don't deserve it, but I'm certainly grateful. And that's what this whole prayer is all about. It's like, hey, church, how do I give them a vision? And I can see Paul struggling. He's trying to find the words. I mean, that's why this is all one sentence, because he's just like, the past, the present, the future, it's all telling you God is amazing. It's all telling you he can be trusted. He's got a plan. He had one long before we existed. And he's been faithfully working out that plan relentlessly through the people of Israel. They gave him numerous reasons. Shift, delete. 
he didn't. Just keeps coming back. Just keeps forgiving them, keeps restoring them, keeps healing them. And right up until now, in the present, here we have this church. And he's trying to explain to the church the lavishness, the extravagance of God's grace that you get wrapped up in his story. So it doesn't just become, it's all about me. No, it becomes, whoa, God, I get to play a part in your beautiful story which started at the beginning and comes all the way through now and I get to pass it on to the next generation. Wow, what a privilege, God. What a privilege to know you, to understand who you are, to see your plan working out through time, to be able to say that we were those who first put our hope in Christ, that we might love for the praise of his glory. And he says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. Paul's writing to the church. He says, this story that's been going on through God's people right from the start, you've been incorporated into that. You've been included into that. You've been grafted in. Our brother's beautiful image of the vine there. You've been grafted in. You've been made part of this people. In chapter two, he's going to tell you once you were not a people. And once you were aliens, you were distant from God. But now God has done something to include it. But now you have responded to his loving kindness. But now we are those who join with the saints of old, who join with all the Old Testament and go, whoa, God, you're incredibly faithful. All this time you have been good. And I love this because he says, when you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit in verse 13. I love that word marked. It literally means stained by the presence of God. I love it. This is a tattoo you can't get rid of. This is a marking that's there. And he talks about the community as those who have been marked with a seal stained with his presence, this Holy Spirit, so that wherever you go, you take it with you. doesn't matter. It's there. Can't get rid of it. You try sometimes, but he's just relentless. And I love that the Spirit is relentless in his commitment to us because, quite frankly, when I think about what God's trying to do in reconciling all things to himself, when I think about this beautiful plan, it's a little overwhelming. If I'm honest, when I think about, God, look at the state of this world. This is impossible. How can we, this really little insignificant group of people, how are we going to do anything? First thing is realize you can't do anything, and that's okay. But as soon as you partner with him, it becomes possible. Sometimes I think, oh, I'm like, whoa, look at the size of this. I work for Tefan. I'm confronted with evil on a daily basis. And I'm like, man, we are this little insignificant. How can we do this? What difference can we make? And then I begin to hear the stories of those who've been freed from sex trafficking. Then I begin to hear the stories come through of people's lives being radically changed, all because God had a plan and he's been faithful. And people have responded to his call. People have responded to his kindness. People have responded to his lavish grace. And look, at now we have a community here. People who have responded. What part will you play in this unfolding story? 
How will you be a community that's holy? How will you be a community that represents His will and His ways and His concerns and His values and His priorities? And it's not just good luck. No, it's you have the Spirit with you. You have God's Spirit. You're marked. You're sealed. This is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of His glory. And it's almost like Paul's saying, yeah, you know, we can begin to appropriate our inheritance. We can begin to appropriate the future. We begin to tap into what God's future is going to look like. We begin to look like now. I mean, it's kind of like Paul's just rephrasing the Lord's Prayer there. On earth as it is in heaven. And what Jesus is praying is that a heavenly state of affairs would be reflected in the lives of those who follow him here and now. The church becomes communities that instantiate heaven. The church becomes communities that embody this future, that embody this, that tell this beautiful story of God who right from the beginning had a plan to include everyone. What part will you play? Individually? Corporately? How will you be part of God's beautiful story of blessing people, of helping people come to know that God's not Zeus? He's not Artemis. He's not threatening you. And he doesn't need some massive monument to remind you of how great and powerful he is. He has a universe that reminds you every day. His temple's bigger. What part will we play? I love it how we start off in the beginning with a blessed be the God and Father. And then we say, in him we have redemption. He's talking about Jesus. And then we end with the Spirit. And there's this beautiful, whoa, the Father's got this gracious plan. Whoa, look at what Jesus has done us to secure this plan. Whoa, look at the Spirit who's outworking this plan. And you see the Father, Son, and the Spirit united in God's reconciling mission. And we've been incorporated into that. We've been taken up into that. What part will you play? Let's just close our eyes. Gracious God, you are good. You are ridiculously kind. I'm astounded by how faithful you are. I'm so gracious that you are the wise and insightful God. That right from the start you had a plan. Right from the start of the story, you had a mission. Wow, that we get to be part of what you're doing, Lord. What a privilege. Help us, Lord, to be centered on you. Help us, Lord, to be focused on you. Help us, Lord, to be reminded consistently that we are those who are marked by your presence that we are those whom you have incorporated into your family, that we are your children, we've been adopted in. What a privilege, God. 
And God, we think about those who are missing out. We think about those who have misconceptions of who you are. Help us to be the community that reflects who you are so that we can rightly explain to others this wonderful story of your kindness and grace. Help us to be a community that reflects your character, your concerns, your values. Help us to be the church, your people. Help us to realize that we have a part to play in all of this. Because God, you don't want anyone to miss out. You want all to be part of what you're doing. To bring healing, to bring restoration, to bring the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven. Father, thank you for your goodness. May we always be reminded of it. May we always celebrate it. For you are worthy.